All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Interview Series. I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and today marks the one-month countdown to our 2022 induction, so the excitement is definitely building here in our office. I can definitely say that. Uh, as always, before we get started, I'd like to thank our Hall of Fame partners, Priority Automotive, the City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, ESPN Radio 94.1, and Davis Business Appraisers. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to bring you programs like Hall Call, so thank you to all of them. Well, here at the Hall, like many other state halls of fame, it's, it's easy to look to the major professional sports in our country for, for our inductees. But did you know, however, that in our history, our long history, almost 50 years, we've represented 23 sports over the course of that 49 inductions. And while today's guests may not be from the four major sports, he is quite possibly the best to ever compete in his sport of whitewater canoe slalom. John Lugbill, as you see on your screen, is a legend and a pioneer in the whitewater canoe slalom discipline. Out of Oakton High School in Northern Virginia, Lugbill is the only paddler ever to win 12 world championship gold medals in the sport. The University of Virginia graduate is not only considered to be the best paddler ever, but also a great innovator through boat design. And we are thrilled to have him join us today on the Hall Call interview series. So John, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Will. Well, John is actually joining us from Richmond, and here's a fun fact. John is also the executive director of the Sports Backers organization, and he works with 2018 inductee Megan Silva-Schultz. So two inductees working in the office now. She can't hold that over you anymore. Yeah, we were, we were actually just meeting. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's great that Megan, you know, we, we one time had a staff outing up there to Randolph-Macon, and uh, we didn't realize the whole trophy case out front was – things that happened while Megan was there, <laughs> you know, all the awards and all the things, it was unbelievable. And then her like life-size banner uh, was the only uh, Jersey that was retired. And, and uh, it was pretty cool. Now, of course, they're, they're the men's uh, division three national champions. So, you know, there's the, the glory days are back at Randolph. That's right. But it was great going up there and playing on the, on the court where Megan played all those great games. Yeah, Megan was actually uh, in the first class that I joined. So that she was in the first induction class during my time in the Hall of Fame. So that's definitely one that I remember very well. And and obviously her contributions at Randolph-Macon are, are countless. But uh, but let's focus on you. You know, we're, we're coming up, like I said, today is the one month countdown to the induction. You know, give us an idea of, of what your introduction was to this sport, whitewater canoe slalom. It's obviously not the a sport that everybody gets introduced to. So how did you get introduced to that sport initially? Yeah, so when I was uh, a kid, uh, 10 years old, I went with my two older brothers and my dad out to West Virginia. We saw this kayak race in Petersburg, West Virginia. and We go, wow, it's really cool. And they had this we, we entered the anything that floats race. We had inner tubes and we like lashed them together, and got dead last in this inner tube race. And, and uh, we were like, man, that was fun racing these inner tubes down the whitewater. And, and we had done a little bit of it, you know, to train, I guess, you know, we paddled down Goose Creek and some of these little rivers in Northern Virginia. And, and all of a sudden we like, dad, let's try kayaking. My dad had never done it. He had no idea. And he goes, okay, you know, and the first time we went kayaking on the Potomac, a guy took us out because he wanted to sell us boats. And uh, my dad flipped and swam and like ripped the cockpit out of, out of the boat. Uh, 
which you don't do the cockpit's like fiberglass in and and uh he had a total panic attack and me and my two brothers loved it <laughs> like we had a great time <laughs> so my poor dad was stuck uh having to be supportive of, of his boys wanting to do this sport um uh, my dad got proficient at it uh eventually but it wasn't like you know a lot of paddlers their parents are into it so they teach them um one interesting fact no uh person has ever won a medal at the world championships or the olympics in whitewater canoeing and kayaking unless you started before the age of 12. Wow. so if you don't start young you just won't have the intuitive feel and and uh so starting at age 10 you know while while young was normal among the yeah. paddlers so so it, it kind of like somehow you had to get into it and then I was very athletic at a young age and and I also was full grown by 14. So so I I excelled early. And if any of you've read the tipping point, uh Malcolm Gladwell's book, he has this thing if you do anything for 10,000 hours you get pretty good at it. And because I was good at it, I got all sorts of positive reinforcement for doing it and started doing it anytime I could, which included, you know, my brother and I would carry our boats down to this bit of uh, a neighbor had a pond and we asked permission to use it and we'd carry our boats down there and paddle in this pond and we'd beg our parents to take us to the Potomac River to paddle I grew up in Fairfax and and uh just whenever we could we you know let's go run this river in West Virginia or let's go do this and and it was always uh it was, it was a ton of fun a, a lot of adventures and I did other sports so you know you were squeezing this in between basketball and football and everything else I was doing uh, but it uh, quickly became obvious one because we did it so much yeah. um, but two I was the right size um, and so was my brother we're, we're both basically 5'9 175 so or were uh, and, and so we were a very good size for paddling Whereas, you know, at five nine, I'm a little short for basketball and football. So, you know, fine at the high school level, but but really not much beyond that. So, so how do you get, give us walk us through the transition from the pond, which is obviously a little bit calmer water, to the white water? Yeah. How how did that become the the next step? Yeah. So we were on white water the very first time we tried, right? Okay. Like, like we went out there. We were in white water at the inner tubes. The white water is the fun. And and it's and there's a big difference. Like if you don't love the whitewater, you won't ever be any good at it. Uh, if you don't love that feel of being in a rapid where you can't just stop, like some people, that's like an out of control feeling. Mm -hmm. And for people like me, uh, that's a feeling of joy, and it's actually something that you get challenged by, and it's something that actually is a thrill. And the, and the best way I could describe it is if you're surfing a wave on a surfboard or if you're body surfing, that moment when you catch the wave and are really cooking, you can't just get off. I guess you can fall, but you know, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have consequences. Um, it's a little bit like that. And, and you can catch waves in the river, you can surf holes in the river. Um, I surfed a ton in the ocean too. Uh, but, but that thrill going through the rapids. And then, then there's also... It, it's constantly learning like you're learning what makes the rapids how does it work how do i navigate through there what is a lane here there where are strokes placed you know all those things really add up in the rapids and so you know learning all that's kind of like an endless an endless puzzle so you're constantly 
you know, so I always said we were kind of a, a combination between a, a middle distance runner, as far as the distance that we raced, and something like a surfer, because you had to have an intuitive feel for the wave and the water and be able to read it and figure it all out. And so we were somewhere in between. At what point did you turn this into, I don't want to say a full-time passion, because it sounds like it was a passion from the second you got in the boat, but from a competition standpoint, when did that become a full-time per pursuit, I should say? Yeah, pretty crazy, but it's pretty quick. Um, so your know, first race, I was 12. Uh, by the time I was uh, 14, I was probably racing, you know, 10 to 15 times a year. And by the time I- In was, organized competitions? Yes, yeah, yeah. I made the senior national team when I was 14. And I actually have a record. So they've changed the rules. <laughs> now you have to be 16 to race at the world championships. So uh, yeah, I'll forever. There's some records you are, know you're going to lose. That's one I know I'm going to keep. That's um, right. So yeah. Maggio's 56 game hit streak in that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was, you know, by the time I was 13, I was paddling every day pretty much. Um, some exceptions, but pretty much. Um, wasn't doing a lot of two a days yet, but uh, and I was strong and young, and and uh, also uh, the U.S. at the time wasn't as good as it eventually was, uh, and and so you know my brother and I made the U.S. national team when I was fourteen and he was sixteen, and actually competed in the world championships in Yugoslavia. So you know, I I, I you know whatever that's called, you know, I, I was definitely, um, it's funny because it, it, you know, sometimes you, you think you're just like a regular person and you think you got there because you worked really hard. Um, and uh, I was watching some video of me when I was a, you know, young teenager racing and I was extremely quick and, and uh, explosive, uh, at a young age so so that that i i would love to say it was because of my hard work but uh, uh you know um my genes definitely helped would you say that that, that quickness <laughs> would you say that, that quickness and that explosiveness though was that the most important skill that you needed to compete to be to compete at that level or were there other skills in this discipline that you feel helped you get to that level uh i was definitely uh quick and explosive and therefore I did well at a young age so therefore I did it a lot and I became extremely skilled in whitewater and so um, currently the best like recreational paddlers that run rivers um, are not racers uh, they're people that just do that mm -hmm. uh, for a a, a period of time in the late 70s early 80s I was also one of the best whitewater paddlers in the world at just running rivers and playing in, in whitewater and so it was a weird time I was I was lucky I guess uh, to be at that time because the skills in the whitewater were incredibly important to racing and I loved it and so that like I don't want to call it a technical challenge because that sounds like something that's like um, but but that that skill in the rapids basically it, to do really well in slalom racing you need to have a really high level of mastery and 
class three, four whitewater. So, you know, rapids are ranked from one being flat water to six being, you know, death-defying waterfall kind of stuff. So three to four is where the races were held. They were, they were always on that kind of whitewater. And you basically needed to be able to shred it and do everything. Um, you needed to be able to just totally own the water and be able to do whatever you needed to do in that, those conditions. And, and for some people, they were barely able to make it down, you know, like it was, you know, they'd flip and roll and that kind of stuff. But, but to really have mastery, you really had to own it. And then, you know, of course I would get into harder water because I had the skills to do it. What was your favorite competition? Is this, is this the type of sport where you have favorite tracks? You know, you'll, you'll have your, yeah. your race car drivers that say, I love this track and they don't do well at yeah. others. Is, is it the same in whitewater canoe slalom? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because the, each river is different and, and there's also artificial courses. So the Olympics are always held on these artificial courses. So, so there's rivers where I did a lot better. Um, and, and there are certain kinds of whitewater that I did better on. And so you always like racing on those more, right? And, and one thing that was good in my career is I, I did learn to do well on almost all conditions. But we didn't have, until 1991, we didn't have a real artificial course here in the United States to train on. So uh, in Europe, the, the competitors would have artificial courses that they could train on year round. So there's some advantages to foils and how the water moves around and some stuff's a little different on an artificial course from a natural river. So I always did better on natural rivers. I always did better on steep, uh, steep creek type courses. And so the 1989 World Championships were on the Savage River in Western Maryland. Mm -hmm. And that was by far my best World Championship victory and one of the best runs I ever had. So um, at the world championships, I had great runs, you know, you know, I can practice when nobody saw me, but, but <laughs> to do it at the world championships um, was incredible. And to do it, you know, the first time the world championships were held in the United States was pretty incredible. But I also really loved the course in Borg St. Maurice in, in, in uh, France. And in my first world championships I won was in Junkyard, Canada and up in Quebec. And that was in 1979. I was, I was, two weeks out of graduating from high school <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh pretty crazy but that course you know I, uh, there was there, I, I love that course that was just a really fun place to be and, and uh, it had a bunch of big holes and at the time even though you know I became way better at it later in my career at the time compared to other paddlers in the world I was one of the you know definitely could distinguish myself in playing in these holes. And, and so that was really, it was really neat. It was really neat to have that skill all of a sudden pay off. Well, I think one thing that I should probably clarify too for the people who are watching and, and will watch and listen is that the, the event that you were in was classified as C1, which means it was you. You were an individual yeah. in the boat. This was not a tandem uh, event. This was not a team competition. And I'm always intrigued when I talk to individual athletes, uh, you know, about what drove you to succeed or when you're at the starting line, what's going through your head because you know that everything that happens is either, you know, it's either on you or, or on the course. Um, you know, you don't have anybody else to lean on. So when you're, when you're at the starting line for these events, what is your mindset? What's going through your, your head after all the prep? When it's time to go, what are you thinking about? Yeah. Um, 
and just one thing we'll have to get back to the team thing because uh i was actually part of part of my record is that i was part of seven teams yes. world championship wins in a row and at the time world championships were held every other year so so for 14 years i was the world champion of the team event um individually one of the things that was kind of interesting and i remember this distinctly as on the start line at the 1979 world championships and so no american had ever won this event at that point and uh i was cocky and and <laughs> I started laughing right before the countdown to the start of the race because I was like, I'm sure glad I'm not racing against me because I'm about to kick butt. And, and it was, it's just such an arrogant thing to say, but there was a certain necessary arrogance in the rapids. Like if, if you didn't feel confident, it was over. Like you were going to flip, you know, you were going to blow out. Like it, it, it happens so fast. If you, question yourself and so you know it's it's it seems so arrogant now um but i tell you what it it like as long as i was doing well i had that attitude and and uh you also had to back it up you know like you had to go out there and perform to give yourself that confidence um so yeah there's some kind of I used to also say crazy stuff like, you know, you, you, you have to aim to be in the top 10 to be in the top 10. You have to aim to be meddling, to have a chance to meddle. Yeah. You actually have to be aiming to win, to have a chance to win. And, and so, you know, it's like, so often people were like, you know, trying to try, make the U S team or, you know, I'd, I'd like to make the finals or get in the top 10, you know? So, so there was, you know, it's, it's always weird to say, because there's, you know, hundreds of people or whatever in the race. And you're like, yeah, but there's only like three or five of us that have a chance of winning. And, and people are like, that's egotistical. And it's like, no, it's not. There's only three or four or five of us that are actually training to win. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's a surprise because someone that never has won before is all of a sudden going to win. But they were one of the people that was training to win. When you're training to win and that's your mindset, what did a typical day of training look like? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, over the years, it did evolve some, but but uh, I paddled twice a day. Uh, I paddled every day year round for years. Um, mm -hmm. Some years every day. Um, some years, you know, I'd miss four or five days or ten or twelve, you know, over the course of the year um, through travel or sickness or you know injury or something. Um, but for seventeen years, I pretty much paddled every day, and then during my biggest years, I was paddling 50 to 55 times a month, pretty much all year. So um, that's not twice a day, every day, <laughs> um, but, but it gets pretty close. And there were periods of time where I was paddling three times a day. The, 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 the thing that was different with slalom paddling, our, our courses were about three minutes long. So the easy way to think of it is you're doing a three minute race. And what was weird, though, it's not steady for three minutes. It's like explode all power on for a few strokes. And then you have to kind of be really precise through some rapids and some sections. And then you're all on again for another few seconds. And so it's not three minutes of go, 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 be evenly paced. Like 
we, they'd put heart rate monitors on us, you know, to test us. And my heart rate monitor would be at 180 by the first gate, you know, like I hadn't gone anywhere yet. And it was like, and it would be like redlining the whole way. And they'd go, you know, you maybe should think about starting slower and pacing yourself. Yeah. And then I'd just be slower. Like, yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> the nature of this thing is to sprint. <laughs> and then there'll be little sections where you're not sprinting as hard. It's more like you're guiding. And then you're sprinting again in the power. I always said it was like having a series of escalators at the airport. And instead of just doing a three minute race, you're all of a sudden like, running down this escalator and it's going to stop and you're going to have to keep running till you get to the next escalator you know the next people mover well that kind of like weird speed thing happens in slalom only you have turns <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> so so it, it just gets really important to time that right you know you're running down the end of the escalator if you jump too early like ugh, you're gonna lose all sorts of time and you know like like that kind of like constant long jump kind of attitude only with turns. So that, that's my best description. <laughs> that's a, that is a very in-depth description and something that I think might either pull people in or scare them away completely from the rapids. But that, that's yeah. amazing because you're right. It's, you're, you're saying it's a three-minute race, but a lot of it is more of the technical precision and not just the speed, you know, paddle as fast oh, yeah. as you can. Yeah, um, yeah you know, it's, it's like incredible. Once you have the skill, it it's like you can be you know you can be really good. Yeah, um, and 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 also the reading the rapids is not like I'm just making it sound like you just learn to read it like you learn to read. Um, it's not like that. You yeah. know, like there's there's no book, and there's no like people analyze it and all that. But I tell you what, if it's if it's not kind of intuitive in your brain you know people always talk about intuitive sports mm -hmm. athletes and, and and there is such a thing right like you just react and and with the whitewater every rapid is different at different water levels every rapid surges um so what you're seeing might not be the same thing as the other paddler uh they're going to come down and it's going to be a surge and it's going to be a little bit different so so how you're reacting and how you're judging that is a constant thing and you get good at it by doing it a lot <laughs> yeah, we, and you get good at it by really working at it well and, and speaking of working at it and doing it a lot we we've talked to other olympic sport athletes so not, not necessarily athletes that participated in the olympics but among the olympic sports and and the work life sports balance is a lot different than it is for say a professional athlete in the major sports and yeah. some of the stories that they will always stick with me about working you know, either a full-time job while competing to train for the Olympics or training for the Olympics or working multiple part-time jobs while doing the same. What was your work-life sports balance in the 80s yeah. across that decade? Yeah, it was like the full gamut. I always say it was, you know, people will say, oh, it was really hard, you know, doing this. And I always go, well, it was easiest when I was in high school because my parents paid for me to Feet, you know, <laughs> I didn't have to worry about the roof over my head. And, and uh, I have very supportive parents. My parents were wonderful. Um, and, and they really got behind me doing well, my brother Ron doing well in sport. And then, then college was a little bit harder, you know, like I, I hate to say it, but, you know, high school wasn't that hard for me and I could kind of cruise through and do my thing. And then, and 
college, it was a little harder. <laughs> University of Virginia wasn't a cakewalk. And so it was a little bit harder, but still my parents supported me through college. I didn't have to work my way through college. And, and I was able, I mean, I trained like crazy in college. It was, it was wonderful for training. Uh, you, you know, you didn't take an 8 a.m. class because that's when you're going to paddle. So you, mm -hmm. your first class would be at 10, you know, like it's great. Um, and so I did take two semesters off when I was at UVA. So in theory, it took five years, but I won world championships each of those years when I took, because we had world championships every other year. Mm -hmm. So um, during world championship years, I'd travel um, Australia, um, Costa Rica, different places um, where it's warm in the winter so I could paddle year round. Um, I paddled year round anyway, but just a bit cold. <laughs> you know, it's always easier when it's warm. Um, and so, and then eventually I graduated from UVA and then I had full-time work and I kept racing and training. So like, you know, you start talking about those times, you know, I'd be up at five, five thirty, I'd be on the water, I'd paddle for an hour and a half, I'd quick race home, I'd go off to work. If I was doing any kind of like cross training stuff i usually did that during lunch uh, come home from work you know 5 36 go out and paddle for another hour and a half uh, often during the winter that means it's dark uh, i paddled a lot at night uh, and and uh, I, I, when i first came here to richmond uh, a local organization asked me to come speak and they're uh, a group of of power boaters that that are all about you know kind of sharing stories on the river and, and safety and i get in there and i start telling the story about paddling at night all the time and they, you know that's okay you have your lights and it's like well no <laughs> and then then they say you know what what's your like best place that you've ever you know one, one of your your best times on the river and i go well one time i was paddling up mother mather gorge on the potomac during a snowstorm and it was like 20 degrees it was just like magical it was like being in alaska or something with these cliffs with ice coming off and, and they all looked at me like, like i was crazy because they were all about safety i was alone at night yeah. in rapids in a snowstorm and it was 20 degrees out like they just thought i was like some kind of huge risk taker but you know at, at that point you know like you um so there one of the times when you think oh what a disciplined person for being out there and it's like no like it was spectacular like like i wouldn't have had that opportunity if i hadn't been pushing myself like that and and it's still very vivid in my mind being out there that night and well, uh you know that that's cool right like like how many days just go by in your life that just disappear into the ether? And, and here, you know, I have this vivid memory of doing something really special on a winter night in the middle of February. Well, and, and it's, it's amazing because that, you know, incorporating that, that drive to succeed with your just everyday life created that memory. And, and you stayed at that level, that, that top international level for almost a decade and a half, probably about 15 years. But during your career, most of your career, the sport, this particular discipline was not offered in the Olympics. There was a gap between 1972 yeah. and 1992. So you only got to compete in one Olympics. And at that Olympics, you, you did have a, a penalty that took you from gold medal position. Just kind of talk about 
your overall Olympic experience and just kind of the pageantry of the games, your personal experience. And, and when you look back on it, how does that factor into your view of your overall career? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, first of all, when you're competing, you're only as good as your last event. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to look back over your career. You always think of what's, what, what, what happened at the end. Um, I, I think when, you know, when you have a chance to step back or to some time, you know, there's, you can see the ebbs and flows over time and the things that changed over time. And, you know, certainly our sport getting into the Olympics changed things. Um, the one real negative thing that it did is, is basically it, the world championships, you'd have four people qualify for that event per country. And every country could send whatever four people they wanted. They could be really good or not, you know, like it'd just be all these people. And then at the Olympics, um, now you get one vote per country. And so the competition within the U.S. all of a sudden became, I don't want to help anyone else, you know, to get to the Olympics because I'm going to be the only one there. And, and previously, you know, four people were going to get to go to the World Championships. So like, it wasn't as cutthroat that way. You weren't as competitive with each other within the U.S. Um, and 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 then the other thing that was interesting, um, you know, here we are, we get to the Olympics, and you know, it's a big deal. And <laughs> in paddling, we raced against each other at the World Cup races, the World Championships. You know, I was competing with the other top paddlers around the world. You know seven or eight times a year. We trained at the same rivers for weeks on end during these races. We all knew each other. A lot of people, I mean, I married my high school sweetheart, Jill, but, but other people married, you know, from different paddlers from different countries. Like this idea that we go to the Olympics and we meet these people from the other countries was kind of funny because, you know, the 200 people in the song race, I knew them all. Yeah. <laughs> and it's people from all these countries. And, and it wasn't some like dramatically different experience. It was actually very much the same as the world championships. <laughs> and so there are some differences though, uh, with this being coach Krzyzewski's last week, I do have to say at the opening ceremonies, you know, I'm with the American team, we're walking in and right before I go in the Olympic stadium, they stopped us and uh, I was about in the middle of the pack and the dream team, 1992 dream team, which Mike Krzyzewski was one of the assistant coaches, came in. And basically, I, I walked into the Olympic Stadium with Carl Malone, and Charles Barkley, and Mike Krzyzewski. And actually, Mike Krzyzewski literally stood next to me. We talked to each other for about 10 minutes uh, going into the opening ceremonies as we were walking around the track. So, so I have That's my little Coach moment. K story. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you know, that there's those moments, you know, it, I always say, you know, we got in the middle, it's okay to tell my story, but anyway, it's like name dropping, but anyway, you get in the middle and I'm with the basketball team is you, you kind of like came around, you know, there's 800 Americans or whatever we were. Yeah. And we come around and they march you into where the U.S. is supposed to stand. And the infield always turns into chaos, the opening ceremonies and, and, um, because the athletes all co-mingle and, and, <laughs> all these athletes just swarmed Charles Barkley in particular, the dream team in general, but Charles Barkley in particular. And I remember these Chinese gymnasts. 
I mean, the female Chinese gymnasts like couldn't have been more than like four or five or four or six or whatever they were. They were tiny, and they were squealing with delight because they'd gotten Charles Barkley's autograph. And then as I'm walking out of that chaos, I see, you know, at the time, these incredible tennis players, Michael Chang from the U.S., Steffi Graf from Germany. No one's paying any attention to them whatsoever. I see Carl Lewis, like one of the greatest long jumper sprinters in Olympic history. Nobody's talking to him. You know, he's just like walking out It's all out about the dream team. And it was all about the dream. And I was like, how do these people even know these guys? You know, and like, you know, so anyway, it was interesting how they were like celebrities within a, a bunch of, you know, really high performing athletes. Yeah. No, so they're really, you know, it's, it's funny Olympic stories because like, what do I remember most? I remember how awful it felt to get fourth at the Olympics. Yeah. But, you know, like, I also remember, you know, I, normally when I touched a gate, so when you touch a gate, they had a time to five seconds to my time. And that bumped me from first to fourth. And normally you know it, like you know when you have a touch. And, and normally, this is arrogant again, but normally I know when I've won. So when I lay down a good, you know, when I was really good, I laid down a good run, I won. And I got done with my run at the Olympics. I thought I'd won. And I looked up the scoreboard and I was fourth. And it was just like, I hadn't had that experience before. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really weird that here I am at the Olympics and I'm having that experience. Um, and I remember, I knew that, you know, NBC, everybody's going to interview me. And uh, I was, you know, favorite to win. And I remember sitting in my boat going, I'm actually okay here. <laughs> I, I, I'm okay with myself here. Yeah, and I, I had to kind of like steal myself for I'm going to go do this interview and I'm not going to cry and I'm going to deal with this, you know, yeah. like this isn't, you know, this isn't some big tragic thing. And, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, you think about it, it's just a paddling race. It's just you trying to do the best you can under those conditions. It is not life altering. You might think it is. But to be honest, it's what you make of that. And, and like other challenges in life, and it's weird to say that getting fourth at the Olympics was a big challenge, but it was. And, and dealing with that was a big deal. And will I always kind of be bummed that I hit that gate? <laughs> yeah, yes. But, but like other setbacks in life, you know, there's, there's things that happen. And, and, you, and you, that's why we race. That's why competition's so much fun. Well, is that you don't know the outcomes, right? Well, and and that's why it was such a joy to win as many times as I did, is because I didn't know I was going to until I did it, and and so it's the same thing with losing. Well, and I think the if there's an unfortunate aspect to just how the Olympic sports are covered, it's that there's so much focus put on the Olympics, and and it kind yeah. of from a from a public perception, it dilutes the world championships, the international competition. So, but for a sports person. And most sports people understand this. These competitions happen year on year, and, and those twelve world championships are nothing to scoff at. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the overall it's, career speaks for itself, and that's why we're having uh, this conversation right now. <laughs> well, it's funny because you know there's more athletes competing at world championships. Yeah. Um, there's there's actually you know there there was 1981. I won the world championships. I was fourth 
at the US team trials. Uh, so, you know, like there's a certain point where, you know, like it's anyway, the Olympics does have a special, special place. And it certainly puts a spotlight on these sports um, that otherwise don't get the attention. And it's a wonderful event. I got to work twice for NBC at the both at Sydney and at Athens, um, commentating for all the canoe kayak events. And, and that was, that was a joy. It was something totally different as well. Um, I, I can tell you though, you know, like if, if you're just a good athlete, you might not end up on a very good time slot. <laughs> if you don't have some kind of story or something behind the scenes, if you don't cry, you know, like if, if there's not some things that are going on behind the scenes, you're going to get buried unless you're in one of the marquee sports. Um, so, you know, like even, even the, you know, person that wins the world champion or wins the Olympics gets a gold medal. It doesn't mean they're going to get a lot of coverage on NBC. In fact, they might not get any at all uh, unless they have some special story. So, so that part of it, even, is, you know, kind of a hidden, hidden truth of the Olympics. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we, we've talked, um, for the better part of a half hour about about your, your your excuse me your international career and just your overall career and and that's again why we're talking right now you know you're being inducted as part of the class of 2022 but you're still heavily involved in in sports in Virginia and an active living lifestyle is something that you promote uh, through the organization sports backers I mentioned it at the beginning of of this conversation for those who don't know kind of give us a, a brief synopsis of of what sports backers is and what your mission is in the Richmond area to, to kind of promote that active living lifestyle. Yeah, great. Thanks for teeing that up. Uh, I, I've been the executive director at Sportsbackers for the past 29 years, and we inspire active living. And we do that in a whole bunch of ways. Number one is we have a bunch of sporting events. Um, we produced the Richmond Marathon. We created one of the largest 10K running races in the country, the Ucrops Monument Avenue 10K. We produce and, and created the Dominion Energy River Rock, a large sporting event that shows off our outdoor attributes in downtown Richmond, which are phenomenal. Um, so we have a whole list of events. Uh, we also uh, work to improve the bike and pedestrian infrastructure in our region. So trails, sidewalks, crosswalks, um, bike lanes, all of that. We are very aggressive in that area. Uh, and then we uh, have programs to get uh, all sorts of people moving. We have classes in underserved communities, fitness classes. Um, Pre-pandemic, we had 60 a week, free classes around the area, churches, community centers, and, and we hope to have those back soon at full tilt. Uh, been doing all the virtual things and outdoor things and everything, but until we get back in those indoor spaces. And then we had uh, 70 different run clubs at area schools. Um, and, and those have also suffered. We're down to about 30 right now just because of school conditions, but um, we're looking to have those back by the fall. So um, really, you know, it's hard to even describe, you know, how big of impact we have on Richmond, but, but Richmond is one of the most active areas uh, in the United States and certainly in the East Coast. Um, so we, we score really high on, on the percentage of our population that's active on a regular basis. So, um, you know, we have some of the largest training teams for like marathons, 10Ks uh, in the country. Um, so there's just a lot of things. We, we 
raise the money to build Sportsbackers Stadium, a track and soccer stadium here that we partner with Virginia Union and Virginia Commonwealth University on. So just a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of working to have, uh, to elevate sports and, and active living in our community and, and really focused on participatory sports. We initially wanted to do more of the high competition type activities, but at the time we didn't have really great facilities for it. And we still don't, um, but there is a bunch of things coming online. There's gonna be a new arena here. There's new uh, indoor um, communities, uh, 4,000 seat kind of arena that's gonna be built. Uh, and then Virginia Commonwealth University is gonna have a whole athletic village here that's gonna really ramp up our facilities. So I think more facility uh, opportunities will allow more um, spectator driven events that we could be part of in the future. But we've been largely focused on getting people uh, participating themselves in one way or another. Um, we also have a scholarship program. We give away $70,000 a year to area student athletes that excel um, and, and really are remarkable um, student athletes as well. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot of things, a lot of different ways that we touch. One way I, I, I kind of explain it, that's kind of just numbers, but we have 250,000 people in our database and, and the Richmond area is a community of 1.3 million. So we have a pretty good reach into a lot of households in the Richmond area. And, you know, if you were any kind of business would be pretty happy knowing that they had that kind of reach in the community. Um, so we're, we're thrilled um, with our success. And, and it's been, it's been so much fun working in sports backers all these years. We started really tiny when I first came and to see it grow um, and see our impact grow. It's just been so much fun. Well, that, that active living lifestyle, I mean, I think that it, it should have already been important prior to the pandemic, but I think a lot of people really saw the importance over these last couple of years. And, and you know, the student athlete scholarships, I mean, that's something that's near and dear to us here at the Hall of Fame as well. We have a scholarship program. So anything that we can do to motivate student athletes to, you know, continue that that growth path is uh, is extremely important. And and John, you know, we're uh, we're excited that in one month we get to induct you and we're excited to we were great, grateful to hear about your story today and hear about sports backers. And and maybe we'll actually do this uh, in a few more months and, and do one that focuses solely on sports backers, because we know there's a lot of good work going on up there. So I just want to thank yeah. you for uh, taking the time to join us today. All right. Thanks, Will. Yeah, there's a lot of great things about participating in sports. And, you know, I think too often we put the focus on what you win, lose mm -hmm. and and the all the things that you can learn from sports, all the value you get from a healthy lifestyle, all of that comes together. And so celebrating sports is something that obviously uh, we both hold dear. So, so yeah, I look forward to being part of uh, being a member of the Hall of Fame. Well, wonderful. Well, we look forward to having you and your family here in a month. Uh, before we get out of here, as always, I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in and also our partners, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, Optima Health, ESPN Radio 94.1, Dabcon Inc., uh, and our friends at the Hampton Road Sports Commission as well. Stay tuned for updates on future hall calls and induction weekend by following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at VA Sports HOF. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and don't forget induction weekend is just 31 days away. We will see you next time.